this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello and welcome. This is the Book Riot Podcast. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And today we are power ranking the top 10 books of the year 2019, a year that is five years ago and also 50 years ago. Um, The original, I guess for our people who have been alive, this is the BC for us before COVID. This is one, I guess this is year zero. Um, I don't remember how this thing happens, but when we name things, but this is the year zero BC before COVID. And looking at the list, it both does and doesn't feel that way. The way we're going to play this is Rebecca and I have each power-ranked um, 10 titles, and we're going to go from 10 to 1, and I, uh, Rebecca usually will start, and she'll say what her 10 book is, and if it's on my list, I say where it is on my list, and we talk about it for a few minutes and kind of move on. Rebecca, how? what very um, specific, exacting, and <laughs> defensible mechanism do we use to justify our power um, rankings. Vibes? It's mostly vibes. Uh, historically, we've used things like what was a big bestseller? What is continuing to be popular today? Or what had legs after it was it, the year that it came out? What has stuck in our minds as readers? Or what has stuck in you know sort of the zeitgeist of readers writ large? And then sometimes it's just personal faves. Um, mm-hmm things that we have a lot of affection for. So it's it is very inexact. This one I think was the most challenging one that we have done so far. If you have never heard us do power rankings, it's because we historically have done this as bonus content at the Patreon. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash podcast. When you join, you get access to all the back episodes. And we've done a, a good handful of yeah. years of these. Um, it's always really interesting to look back. This one, being five years back, I had a real moment of like, wow, most of these books are books I don't think about anymore. And it was just five years ago. But 2019 was also uniquely weird because most, if not all, of the best-selling books of the year in 2019 were things that came out in 2018. And we're talking about Where the Crawdads Sing, Becoming by Michelle Obama, Educated by Tara Westover, Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. Huge, huge books that came out mid to late 2018 and just dominated sales through 2019. So picking these, like top books of 2019 got extra challenging because I couldn't just rely on sales or I couldn't use sales as a primary metric for it because they were overshadowed by 2018 books. Mm-hmm. What's your specific yeah, um, exact science? <laughs> Tell me. Well, I was going to say the <laughs> this is the closest power rank we've ever done. We've never done one of only five yes, years. Yes, this the, is the most the, recent. Usually we've done minimum. What we thought it would be interesting because of the BC phenomenon too, but also this opens up every year. We can add more, one more power ranking, right? If we're doing five, 10, mm-hmm. 25. What's the long, is 25 the longest one we've done? I don't think we've done a 30 oh. or 40 yet, have we? No, I don't think we've we done, haven't. 25 I think is the farthest back that we've 
gone because that really stretched like I was in middle school when we were when those books were coming out and that really stretched us yeah we really need at least a precocious um, Rebecca Shinsky with a copy of (laughs) She's Come Undone on the corner of her desk to show off to people we need at least that because uh, that and again to go further back than that might be an interesting sort of archival or research thing but anything we're doing here we have a sense memory of um, yes. I keep thinking about what Chuck Klosterman wrote during the 90s. Like He also wanted to capture what it felt like to live in the 90s. And so much of what we do here with these lists is to add you know, award winners, sales, other things, but also what felt like important books then and what, and what um, remain to be important books now. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think, to consider going back 30 or 40. And I do think those would be mm-hmm. less power ranking and more like, how many of these do any of us know about? <laughs> You know, in the, right, right. the the elder millennial, you know, younger uh, elder millennials into like Gen Z readers uh, and the kind of folks who are you know reading Book Riot and following this show. It's interesting to think about how really how few titles from 30 or 40 years ago are things that any of us have in our reading consciousness these days. Mm-hmm. It, at, when I first started going through this, it looked fairly weak to me. And mm-hmm. then... When I got down to it, I was like, well, it's not top-heavy. And my top five, I think I had number one at number one. All, all of them were at number one in various permutations of the mm, list. So there's not a clear okay. number one. There's a, for me, there's a lot of interesting three through nines. Yeah. Or three through tens, frankly. I agree. I, I suspect we may have the same number one. Um this I think I might know. be the most variable list we've ever had, right. like with less overlap between the two of us. There are a few of these where we've got like seven or eight overlaps and we've come in at the same title on number one several times. Yeah, I don't know. It's I, and I have not like as of this moment decided for sure what my number 10 is. There, oh, are, there are six okay. titles. Wait, you realize that's 10. the next thing we're doing, right? Is number ten. That's literally the next thing. I'm gonna. I was just. I'm I know. gonna throw to a sponsor break, and then we're going to ten. You I was know just, that's how this works. I was okay. waiting for the moment just to see what would happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the, I'll, I'll give you um, four seconds in real time uh, for the listeners out there. You'll hear between one and three sponsors now, but uh, let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. From the best-selling author of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle comes a new mystery. A fog has swept the planet, killing anyone it touched except for the island where villagers and scientists live in harmony. The villagers content to do what they're told by the scientists. But then one of the beloved scientists is found brutally stabbed to death, and they realize the security system around the island has malfunctioned and has wiped everyone's memories of exactly what happened the night before. So someone on the island is a murderer and they don't even know it. Best-selling author Stuart Turton is a major voice in the mystery space, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, and his second novel, The Devil and the Dark Water, have sold over 450,000 copies and become a TikTok phenomenon. He's received fantastic reviews from best-selling authors in major outlets. Make sure to check out his latest work, The Last Murder at the End of the World. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. 
So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high arched alcoves and oak lined library and the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she's befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover once and for all what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling when we were silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by Underlined, publishers of The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I've been reading her since I was an actual child and reread her at least a few times every year. So I'm so excited that this sequel is out because it's reminding me about the original that I've been meaning to read for quite some time. And now I can read both back to back. So how do you solve a murder? You follow the lessons of the master, of course, Agatha Christie. Iris and Alice find themselves in the middle of another Castle Cove mystery in this sequel to the New York Times bestseller, The Agathas. This time, to understand the lies of the present, the Agathas will need to look to the mysteries of the past. The Night in Question is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. That audiobook I have my eye on, and it's narrated by Mayor Dudeja, Sophie Amos, and Holly Linneman. Thank you once again to Underlined and The Night in Question by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson for sponsoring today's show. All right. Well, that was plenty of time for you to regroup <laughs> and definitely come to um, where you want to go. Uh, where do you want to go with number 10, Rebecca Shinsky? I think number 10, I will take How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Wow. Okay, <laughs> now, um, okay, you talk about it, then I'll tell you where I have this. <laughs> it was huge, huge in 2019 and 2020. Like enormous book sales in that you know big wave of Black Lives Matter activism that came after the murder of George George Floyd. But then has tapered off, and it feels to me like, it, since we're talking vibes, it feels to me that the, I don't know, appetite for, first of all, an enormous book, it's like 500 pages, um, a big book that is Kendi's particular flavor of anti-racism, uh, has that, I think that appetite has waned, or just more criticism around his approach has popped up. Um, we don't see as much about it. There was the big Netflix adaptation uh, of Stamped from the Beginning this year or late last year, late 2023. Um, I think this one's going to stand the test of time as a real like artifact from this particular moment that it grew out of in America's conversation about race and how we reckon with racism. As we've talked about on the show, I suspect that a lot more copies of this were bought than read. And that that's also part of mm. why it hasn't like fully infiltrated consciousness or like really stayed in the conversation. I toyed like it, I moved it around in a lot of different positions on this list. And I toyed with like, well, 
I don't really even hear much conversation about him now. Five years later, does it get a spot on the top 10? But it was so, so important at the time. So it's in 10. I suspect from your reaction, you have it way higher. Yeah, like at number one is where I have had. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, and in everything, I agree with everything you just said in terms of its tapering. The reason I have it one, A, it's not a super deep draft, right? There's no obvious number one. Now, I think I know what maybe you thought we might have. Anyway, now mm-hmm. we're now we're pinning criminology together, which will be revealed in like 19 minutes. So let's not be too cute about it. Um, this was era defined. This defined the next five, three to four years of discourse, and I think it's going to remain that way in our mem- we we people remember how big it was. Now, this can go a couple different ways. Could it be? like Benjamin Spock defining, like people mm-hmm. do, in terms of like paradigm how to raise shifting. a baby yeah. or paradigm shifting, silent spring, it becomes, and I don't, I think it, I think that it now is a subject of critique rather than of what really happened at the time. And I think what happened with, you know, all these other kinds of books that came in its wake or right around the same time was an uncritical swallowing on the part especially of well-meaning liberals, just to swallow these ideologies whole. Um, And it created an enormous backlash. I think, frankly, the book-banning world in we we live now is largely a response to this book specifically and books like it about, you know, proscriptive... um, proscriptive philosophies, you know, sort of secular theologies of of how structural racism works um, and how individuals can respond to it. And I think the, the ripples are the ripples are much bigger than it feels like that they are because mm-hmm. this book has fallen off the pedestal. But in that falling, there were earthquakes. When that thing hit the ground, there was all kinds of repercussions happening to it. So I could I definitely could see it at number ten. I don't I'm not gonna argue with it, but I'm just explaining why it's like and everything was like, yeah. what's the most important book that came out? I was like, in terms of the number of copies sold, what it's meant for cultural discourse, what we're going to know in 50 years, I think people are going to point to this book and be like, for right or for good or for ill or probably somewhere in the middle, like that's when this book came out that ushered in this whole popular DEI discourse that we're still living in reckoning mm-hmm. with. So that's why I have it at number one. Yeah, that's interesting and all fair. And I think if we were doing this in... 2022 in the middle of those midterm elections where no one could stop talking about critical race theory without it's, it us actually You're right. understanding. The last 12 months have been a yeah, real change. In that since the, and I'm sure this is recency bias, at least in part, that since the book banning conversation has shifted so far into being really focused on discussions and expressions of sexuality and queerness and really trying to tamp that down and the GOP has shifted to like everyone is trying to groom our children and turn them gay. They've kind of let go of the CRT conversation. Um, It feels a lot less present, but even, yeah, even a shift of like 12 to 14 months would have bumped this uh, higher up my list. I just can't help thinking that like, you know, even the stuff around Claudine Gray at Harvard is like the long tail of Mm -hmm. how to, I mean, how to be anti-racist didn't create all this, but it was the flag bearer. Um, and that war still rages. So I think there's something to be said for recognizing yeah. that. So that's why I have it at number one. But again, I had it as low as five. I didn't have it any lower than five in any version of this um, 
for similar reasons. Okay, I guess that brings me to my number ten. That's the farthest we've ever been off. Yes, I think it patrons. is. <laughs> we never have, it. and I'm not surprised actually. Like it, yeah. it's, it says something about that book. That and it's um, yeah, we've before. had a handful where like I've had a title you didn't have, and you've had a title I didn't yeah. have, but we've never had a ten and a one split. A ten and a one, yeah. Um, I had a lot of candidates for 10. So my 8 through 15 are all throw them in a basket a little bit. Sure. So I was trying to figure out why to choose Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb as my 10 versus some others. I think the reason is not unlike with How to Be Anti-Racist. I think it is, it's the best-selling popular nonfiction book about therapy that I think has ever existed. And much like How to Buy Anti-Racist has ushered in or was the, like I said, flag bearer for ushering a certain kind of discourse. We are now talking about um, something that's not aging well is therapy speak, mm-hmm. right? In, in popular culture writ large and social media posts and everything that goes into it. And I think it's important to, to note that this was a hugely popular book, sold very well. Um, Gottlieb be- was and then has become a I guess kind of a C-level self-help guru, not even a guru of a kind, but someone people turn to. It's also really good, and it was super popular. Yes. Um, so I thought it was worth number 10, sneaking with number 10 on yeah. the list. It, that's my number nine for, okay, mostly, cool. very yeah, for mostly those same reasons. It was also kind of the moment where therapy came back into like pop culture representations like we had you know dr melfi on the sopranos for a while and then there was this big (laughs) dip (laughs) of doing therapy in pop culture but Lori gottlieb comes out with this book uh dr orna starts doing couples therapy on showtime which Mm -hmm. if you have not watched that and you've got paramount plus with showtime it is fascinating esther perel starts putting out her podcast where you can listen in on her couples therapy sessions with folks I think that started around 2019 and maybe you should talk to someone is now like a very frequently used comp title for any memoir related to mental health or therapy in any way. Um, I was just talking on an episode last week about an upcoming therapy memoir that uses this as a comp and like I will read these. This is effective for a person who's interested in that kind of book and it was a good book Uh, and she puts enough of herself into it to you know have that human connection but also I think really did some good destigmatizing and demystifying of what therapy is actually like for folks oh and like then Jonah Hill made that documentary with his therapist this has become a thing and I think we have Lori Gottlieb to thank for a lot performative public therapy is in in a lot of ways I think the master discourse of a certain contingent of folks right Mm -hmm. I I think it just oh well yeah that's like Glennon Doyle's entire podcast right yeah, yeah. And, and you can throw that on to some early, I mean, maybe Cheryl Strayed is a, you know, kind of the um, the uh, archaeopteryx of this uh, <laughs> with Dear Sugar, of a kind of new age advice column that is not about, it, it's, it, I'd be interesting to see, I wonder if there's a, a book out there that's sort of the history of the advice column, mm. because it went from something like Emily Post, right, of manners. Yeah, etiquette. To... To, to, you know, the ethicist, to therapy really being asking, you know, kind of flipping the script where the therapist is the one asking questions, right? Rather than the, the, the um, I guess, the, the mm-hmm. writer in. But a public discourse about how to be in the world that's performed as a back and forth, a call and response, an interaction, a discourse, that's a fascinating kind of model for public and private thinking about 
you know what what it means to be alive and how how do you do this stuff? So this is a good I'm, this is a good example. I say this mm-hmm. is still holds up very well. If you've yes. read this book and you're interested at all in this kind of thing, I would recommend it um, at this point. So that was my. T- that was my 10, your nine. So mm-hmm. I guess your 10 is still on the board. So let's go back to that. No, my 10 was how to be an anti-racist. So we need oh, your okay, nine great. now. Yeah. All right. Let's do a sponsor break real quick and we'll come into that. Right. That was your 10. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iamide and Adiba Jai Gadar. And let me just say... These two authors are powerhouse YA authors. They write bangers. They write fire novels that slap. Just letting y'all know that off rip. So ex-best friends Tiwa and Saeed must work together to save their Islamic center from demolition. Tiwa doesn't understand what made Saeed start ignoring her, but it's probably that fancy boarding school of his. Anyway, he's unexpectedly staying at home through the summer and she's determined to take a page from him and pretend he doesn't exist. So there's that. But when the Islamic Center accidentally catches fire, it turns out the mayor plans to demolish the center entirely. Shady, shady boots. So will all their efforts be enough to save the Islamic Center, save Saeed, and maybe even save their relationship? Listen, time will tell. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Four Eads and a Funeral by Farida Abike Iyamide and Adiba Jaigadar for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yael Vanderwalden. This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safe Keep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also... It's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the corners I'm talking about. And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwalden for sponsoring this episode. All right, um, number nine. I struggled what to do with this, um, and I'm still not sure that I wanted to have how to do nothing on here, mm. but I have it on here. I, I guess I'm doing a lot of... If these three books all together felt like they set the conversational agenda about productivity, interpersonal relationships, and cultural being for like... The next five years, we're still living in the worlds of these things. So this is Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, which is about, let's see, what was you, and I'm now more down on this than I was because I didn't care for her more, most recent mm. one necessarily, Saving Time. But it was a, it, it was a, an anti, I guess a, a, a counter to life hacking, um, efficiency porn, and other kinds of like personal optimization trends that came really out of the startup era. Um, and I think came out of like all of the, I think many of these other things do too, out of the Trump administration and, and what led up to and what oh, that yeah. represents about resistance to financial capital 
bureaucratic, administrative, and structural impositions on our interior lives, which I think is a cool thing to do. Um, now it's turned to cliche in how can you do this in late capitalism, right? This is sort of mm-hmm. got boiled down to in a, in a fortune cookie version of um, how to do it. But I think it still has a lot to teach us. I think it's also been superseded in my mind, frankly, in the same vein by 4,000 Weeks by yes. Oliver Berkman. I like that one a little bit better. I'm not sure that 4,000 Weeks catches on if How to Do Nothing doesn't exist. So that's why I have it here as number. Mm, I like that. I left this off mine, but I toyed with yeah. it. And the reason I ended up leaving it off was primarily that I do think the conversation has shifted to like some combination of 4,000 Weeks and Atomic Habits that what Jenny O'Dell is really <laughs> talking about is how to get outside of the attention economy or at least like minimize your participation in the attention economy, mm-hmm. minimize the extent to which the attention economy utilizes you as a tool. Um, uh, we now under really understand, I think now that we've had several years of TikTok discourse coming after how to do nothing, yeah. we really understand uh, what apps are going for with just trying to get us to pay more and more attention or just continue, you know, swiping and scrolling and using them. It feels it's more philosophical and less prescriptive. Um, I really suspect that how to do nothing got Instagrammed a lot more than it got read. <laughs> and like, sure. It's all- Which I think we can say is true as most nonfiction, that's but that's well, that's well taken. You know, that's like well it's it pretty philosophical and a lot of it is about art criticism. <laughs> so- yeah. Um, which I I really yeah. liked it, but it did get superseded for me by four thousand weeks, and then by a spate of books that are directly about the science of attention that have come out since. There was um, Stolen Focus that came out mm-hmm. a year or two ago. Um, Gloria Marks just has a book out called Attention Span. Uh, if this is a thing you're still thinking about, there's a great Ezra Klein episode uh, where he interviews her. So yeah, I just I kind of looked at how to do nothing. And I was like, mm, we're not. I was casting forward to like Rebecca from five years, five years out from now. And like when this book is 10 years old, I don't really think we're talking about Jenny O'Dell anymore. I cannot play that four dimensional <laughs> time chest of, of like have seven different versions of me looking at it at five year increments into the well, and you know, uh, time horizon towards infinity. Just, Congratulations to you. Yeah, we're generally just so great at predicting how we're going to feel in the future. I should completely yeah, factor right. this into my decision yeah, making. Makes, but makes total but sense. there we were. Okay, so we've done both of our tens and both of our nines. Yeah, so it's eight to you. It's eight to me. Uh, I have Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Weir. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know if I really want it on this or not, but the book was such a big deal before it came out. It's been a big deal since it came out. The subsequent books in the series have been popular. Maybe it is like my little bubble of Booktornet Corner. But I continue to just see like really avid fandom for this. And it feels like a particular, like this ushered in avid fandom about a particular flavor of book that I can't even fully summarize because this is not my flavor. So I have not read them. But when I was I have not read this either. Yeah. When I was scrolling through looking at stuff that came out in 2019 and that did well, like Gideon the Ninth, or at least that series is still being talked about. People are still, it seems to me, very excited when there's an additional entry there. So there we go. I could be talked into lowering. I could be talked into taking it off the list. I don't think I could put it higher than eight. If you ask me in an hour, this top 10 is very different. (laughs) Probably like it's been, it's this whole list has had many shapes over the last week, but that's, that's where I'm going. Giddy in the ninth. 
There, it, it represents a kind of book, author, series, and fandom that it is difficult to know what to do with. I mean, frankly, the the wildest version of it is Sarah J. Moss, yes. right? Which is hasn't punctured. It both has and hasn't punctured popular discourse, right? It's it's very strange. Um, now, now at this point, Sarah J. Moss is different, but I guess the Sarah J. Moss of like three or four years ago, which there's a bunch of books in the series, people love it, makes a ton of money. Um, you know, Bloomsbury gets to have a Christmas party in the whale room of the right. Museum of Natural History in New York because it's on the back of Sarah J. Moss. Congratulations to them. But I think now again, this is super. This is anic, um <laughs> data of two that neither you and I or I have read this, and we do this for a living. Now we're not going to get to everything, but we have not neither of. Both have we not read this, nor are we going to, Rebecca, you yeah. and I? It means I can't put on my list. Okay. But that's, that's, that's me. That's an, okay, that's, that's an interesting and fair vibe. I I had some space for, like, I think sure. Gideon the Ninth is pretty, like, straight genre in a way that we both will do, yeah. you know, like, literary genre or genre-fied mm-hmm. literary stuff. You can do a little more straight genre when we talk about sci-fi than I can, because I can't yes, do the world-building thing. More. In my brain, romance is probably really the only like straight, straight genre that I read. Mm. Um, so if we had to leave off like deep genre <laughs> just because we won't read it, I would have also left it off. But I, I, I have some room here for Gideon the Ninth and just all the excitement that came up around it. Okay, what I, is I, your? Because I, I kind I looked at that too, and I think there's a world we could do these drafts or some version of it where we have maybe there's our top ten and there's like special awards like. Cult favorite isn't wrong, mm. but like fan favorite or a like, yeah. you know, snow globe fandom. And I definitely think this is a That's candidate right. for something like That's that. That's a good one. Okay. Um, What's your number eight? Um, just because you win an award, a major award, doesn't mean you get on my list. Um, and actually, there's a notable award winner that I didn't care for that's not on my list. It might be on yours. I'm not sure if we're going to get to it or not. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know how many people read The Yellow House uh, by Sarah Broom, but it, it won the... National Book Award for 2019. It is her memoir slash investigation of urban planning in New Orleans, a personal and public narrative and accounting for how basically infrastructure and local policy collides in cultural um, forces to make people's lives in this particular place. I, as you know, we both love this kind of, I'm going to take my specific experience and connect it to a larger phenomenon um, and you know, do a public and private and telescope out from the one to the many. Um, this is a terrific book. I see it remaindered available all the time in Pals, and I keep wanting just to buy it and hand it out to people that are interested. If you like nonfiction, popular nonfiction, if you're interested in ideas, this is the this is the kind of current event book I can get behind. Um, I typically don't read a lot of political or current event books, but this is deeper, richer, and more intimate than that. It's a wonderful achievement. I wish more people read it. Maybe too high at eight, um, but I have some space to give to these remarkable achievements in memoir slash political slash, you know, the pillars of the earth kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful and, 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 and well done to boot. So Yellow House, maybe too high. I couldn't put it much higher, I don't think, but I wanted to have it on the list. That's one that went on and off my list and up and down it and ultimately You would I, dig this man. You yeah, would. I've read I, it. I liked like it. Book. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I just had a like, oh, it just felt like it had a moment and fell away. I want her to I want Sarah Broom to continue to be 
talked about. Like, I'm in for whatever <laughs> she wants to do. Next, um, the defining feature of this particular draft to me feels like it could go higher. It could go lower. You could take it, it could off. It could go higher. It could go lower. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I think... Were you alluding to trust exercise by Susan Choi? The yes. award? Okay, yeah, that one also did not make my list, but it went up and down and sideways and, and ultimately fascinating fell off. that we both <laughs> left it off. It may, I mean, it makes sense to me. Right? Yeah. And it is this is a different this is a different task than it book of the year, right? The, it book of the year at the end of 2019, or I guess whenever the Pulitzer was awarded, certainly would have been on there. But I I don't see this much talked about. Return to. Yeah, it won the National Book Award, and this is, I need to go, yeah, it was a National Book Award, but I need to go back and look. It feels to me like 2019 was about the time that the National Book Award started turning more MFA, artsy-ish, That and I don't know if 2019 was the first year, but I think this is like in the moment of that turn. I did really personally, I liked trust exercise. I didn't love it. It was divisive when it came out. Probably the fact that most people were either really hot on it or really cold on it. There wasn't a lot of lukewarm Mm. response to it. That makes it tough for a book to have longer legs. It it hasn't been adapted. It would be an interesting but tricky adaptation. So I think that was probably... I was like, yeah, this is just going to fall away. And again, future Rebecca of 2029 was like, yeah, we're not still talking about Susan Choi. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or at least not trust exercise. Uh, Okay, so those were our eights. That means it's time for my seven. I had Mm. Made by Stephanie Land. Just off my list. Okay. Big book. Um, big memoir, the biggest memoir, I think, of 2019 since Educated was the memoir that, and, and Becoming were the memoirs that yeah. were running sales in 2019, but they came out in 2018. Um, it does some of the Barbara Ehrenreich work that Nickel and Dimed did previously, but in a really much more like narrative memoir situation about the experience of working, you know, a difficult blue collar job. She is a maid. She's a single mother. She's in her late 20s. Um, and now it's been adapted for a Netflix series. She's got a big new deal for the second book. This was a subject of a lot of conversation and a lot of book club selections. Feels also like kind of just like a a memoir of the moment. Um, and this type of memoir, I think consistently performs well, but there's something to me about, like where we were politically, at least, you know, in the later part of the teens there, um, discourse around what it meant to be someone who identified as like a lower or lower middle class, dealing with economic difficulties, um, and trying to contextualize that experience, like both in and around the specter of the Trump administration. Um, there's a, There's a lot of this kind of book that came out then that were both a response and I think a pushing back to some of the narrative uh, that was happening politically then and made as an interesting part of that. I, I'd i never had it higher than seven. There were moments where it came off the list. This this is just a tough one. It's a really interesting year. Yeah, I can see that. I really only had room for one memoir, I okay. think, on my list. And so I picked Yellow House just because right. I think, I don't know, I thought it's a reporting achievement added something to the mix that made is much more personal. Um, yeah. But it has it has wider cultural implications and discourse as well. It's a very good book. I'm glad to see that her follow-up is going well and she's got a full-on 
uh, career. Okay, this this t- seven to two. Mm-hmm. Put them in a put them in a <laughs> bowl and shake them up. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one that kept falling to the bottom of this middle echelon for me. Um, I'm still not even super happy with it right now. Wait, no, it's your seven. Your, was that your seven? Or is that yeah, my seven, seven was made, so we're on you. I'm still trying to... <laughs> I'm trying to trying get out to of it. Chuck and jive. <laughs> I'm, trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out how to uh, contextualize it. I guess... Hmm, look, the words bigless dickless are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> so... <laughs> the biggest mover... On the uh-huh, list, uh-huh. by far, even within the last 12 months, um, this book has become, through a moment of social media, uranium-238 mixed with fentanyl, mixed with Red Bull, uh, <laughs> shot into the front spinner racks of every bookstore um, in America for the time. It's still up there. I still see it in the recommended. It's still people are looking for it. Um, if you don't know this story by now and you've been listening to the show, I'm so sorry for having to regale you with it again or for the first time. But a Trigun slash anime fan account um, said something. In fact, I don't have the tweet in front of me. I was going to go look it up to to do a dramatic reading of it. Um, don't. I'm not going to tell you anything. Don't ask any questions. Essentially, go pick up This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um, it's a book that had been out for a while, of course. You know, it's been out for several years. It is a slightly larger than a novella story of two semi-robotic future time-traveling assassins that fall in love over space and time. That is what is that is a real thing that this is about. It is quite moving. It is quite beautiful. And I don't. I, I guess I'm surprised to say to you today, Rebecca Shinsky, that it wasn't just a flash in the pan. It's not selling as well as it was, but this really did elevate this book to a different level on an ongoing basis. So that's why I have it at number seven here. I really toyed with that one for all of the reasons that you listed. And I didn't put it on the list because it feels to me like it wasn't a momentary flash in the pan, but that two years from now and two years back, it wouldn't have made the top. 10 that like right now it's for me like right now it's got power um because we're still writing the tale of writing the tale of bigolus dickolus what an alternate show title that would be it did not make the the new york times 100 notable book list even at the time i mean that's yeah it it was underknown there was it had a fan following i mean almost like a gideon the ninth kind of following i would say at the Mm -hmm. time not dissimilar it it did well like people liked that book and i read it not that year, but the year after, because it appeared on some science fiction best of list. This is not something that you would pick up neither yeah. by yourself. Yeah, and I'm sure that's um, part of it not going on my list is I don't have any personal relationship to it. Um, yeah. So that makes it difficult to contextualize something. I, I looked mm-hmm. at it, though, when I was looking at the books that came out in 2019. I wondered if Bigolus Dickolus would show up here today. Yeah. All right. So it we jumped all the way up to number 28, I should say, on the Goodreads Most Popular Books of the it Year really list. really had I'm, a moment. I, that's where it is right now. It, yeah. It's a huge mover. Um, so yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was your seven. My yeah. six is Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Okay. Um, felt like this was not the start, but the like in the first wave of the current like really big wave of mainstream queer romance. Um, mm-hmm. 
Casey McQuiston, like this also how Casey McQuiston became a household name <laughs> for those of us who yep. read any kind of romance. The mainstreaming of a queer romance story I just think is fantastic. There was a big Amazon adaptation last year that did very well. Um, was one of the first contemporary romances with the, the cute illustrated cover or it was in the first wave of them and now that's all that all contemporary romances have as a cover just feels like the uh, an important document to me Mm -hmm. from a moment in the genre also where reading romance was just becoming more mainstream in reading culture um it wasn't like as we were really moving out of folks understanding of romance as like legit like bodice rippers in mass market paperback but publishing was starting to like really latch on to the idea that you could package and market romances differently and that if you did them about all kinds of romantic preferences and sexual identities and orientations you could continue to reach broad audiences that it's not just queer people who read queer romance Um, and red white and royal blue was i think just a really signal work in getting that done it's still being read and recommended has that fresh adaptation Um, never had it any higher than six it moved a little lower on the list a couple times but i feel pretty good about it here in the middle although my top ones are mostly in that you know just put them in a like lotto spinner (laughs) and you can Mm -hmm. put them in any slot for the most part I had this at five, so I had it right in this zone. You know, I'm looking at it now, and it feels like there's a lot of flag bearers. I guess in this case, Mm -hmm. it might be P flag bearers for those of you 90s kids that (laughs) were around for the first first eras of (laughs) inclusion and diversity talk. Um, I guess another thing, we didn't talk about the moment of 2019 too much. Well, I guess we did, but one thing we didn't mention is we're in the last 12 to 18 months of the calm before the TikTok storm mm-hmm. of book talk. It was really, it was getting rolling here, but during, through COVID um, supercharged and then Hoover comes along. But that red, white, and royal blue was ready. It had demonstrated to the publishing world a crossover mass market commercial appeal of a certain kind of romance and a certain kind of romance that includes LBTQ characters. Yep. Um that is not about gay pain. This is not, you know, that book. Yes. This is celebratory and fun and silly and yeah, it's heartbreaking. A great time. And heartbreaking, but moving. It's a good time. Um, I may be too close to this because this was a gateway drug in my particular yeah. household with someone <laughs> who I may share a life with <laughs> that has become an important part of her reading life. So I have a proximal affection for it. Uh, and, you know, it, it matters. I, I think it, do, it does matter, and a lot has come after. Um, and, you know, this and How to Do Nothing, maybe you should talk to someone handled by interest, feel kind of like put they, they put flags down that a lot of other, both rally, were already rallying around and then led the charge forward in yeah. the future. And that's really interesting. That's, that 2019 feels like a start of a lot of things. It's really um, a great very interesting. point that it's the cusp of a bunch of things we didn't realize we were on yeah. the cusp of. And then to contextualize what happens in 2020 like you know three months into 2020 the world shuts down and people reach for a lot of romance a lot of like wonderful hopeful warm escapist fiction we reached for self-care and mental health information so maybe you should talk to someone and like how to do nothing and the therapization of nonfiction, I think mm-hmm. also really applies there. It's and we were watching a ton of TV, so stuff that got adapted. <laughs> also, yeah. also 
factors in, but it, it is interesting to, to look at it that way, that 2019 does feel like the cusp of a bunch of things in books. Okay, so Red, White, and Royal Blue is my six. What's your six? My six. I guess to go the other way, I think my number six picks is actually the culmination of the three to five year period before, at least in terms of public reporting um, mm-hmm. on Me mm-hmm. Too, um, I Have She Said That's my by five. Jody Cantor and Megan Tui here at number six. So we just flip-flopped yep. five and six. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't know what to say about this. A book that has grown in my estimation, I really liked it at the time. Um, I thought the adaptation was quite good, if underseen. Um, I love reporting I stories. I love mm-hmm. journalist stories. Yeah. In a different version of my life, I think I would have liked to have been an investigative reporter. Um, though it, inclu- it involves a lot more getting out of the house than ideally would, would make sense for me. Um, the lot of going up and knocking on strangers' yeah, doors, and yep. as you know, Rebecca, not really one not of my Not your vibes, favorite. Not your favorite but, thing. But uh, that, if I had that club in my bag, I guess maybe I could have been a professional golfer um, when it comes to investigative reporting. But maybe this is the silent spring. Maybe I was looking at... Mm-hmm. Um, some of these other ones down down the board, but if I had to pick a one that we're going to look back on and say became a pillar of nonfiction, both of the moment and for all time, and representative of a, of a, of a shifting in tides, um, again, it was the culmination because so much of the reporting and discourse around Me Too happened on social and in real time and in smaller pieces and chunks. But I think there is something to be said for the big standalone book that yeah. people can pick up autonomously in 10, 15, 20 years, or even six years, or even six months, and have that experience and have it be complete and deeply reported um, and thoroughly and a thorough accounting. So that's why I have she said here at six. I yeah. guess you're going to say something somewhere at five, but yep. what else? What did yeah. I miss on that? I, well, I, had, I just felt like it had to go in the top half of my list. So mm-hmm. I put it at five. It feels like, speaking of cuspiness, that 2019 was also around the time that the New York Times and, of course, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey broke this Harvey Weinstein story for the Times, was starting to do more content and media ar- like based on their reporters and about the reporting process. Yeah. So we get this book from Cantor and Tui, but also like they show up on the New York Times Daily podcast. They show up on other big podcasts and other mainstream, you know, news outlets talking about the process of breaking this story, talking about investigative reporting. Now they are breaking stories about what the hell is going on in the Supreme Court. Um and mm-hmm. and I think that the work they were able to do around this Weinstein case laid the groundwork for them to level up into investigative reporters who are getting the dirt about like how long did this justice take or not to answer this email when they were making this important Mm. decision um really important work and then they're continuing to talk about their process like this you know as you were saying not the first journalistic memoir we both have a lot of affection for reporting stories and you could look at the post goes back you know like 30 years Mm -hmm. before this but it feels to me like a signal work of journalism of the time, but also of the direction journalism was going where, you know, these journalists become kind of a household name in a different way than reporters had been household names in the past, because we get to hear, we get to not just read their reporting, but we get to hear from them on a little bit more of a personal level through stuff like a podcast and other forms of news. Okay. So we've hit both of our sixes. Oh, I guess I've, 
I wanted to pair with She Said, Women Talking mm. by Miriam Taves, because that to me is like the signal work or a signal work of Me Too fiction, precisely because she puts it in such a different uh, or an unlikely context. This isn't Hollywood. This is a group of uh, Mennonite women who are experiencing terrible violence at the hands of their male partners. Most of them have experienced this in some capacity. They're watching their daughters experience it. And the men are away for like 48 hours and the women are just sitting in a barn talking about what they should do. Um, you don't get that book in 2019 if we didn't have Me Too in 2017. And then yeah. the adaptation of it is really bracing and phenomenal. If you can get yourself to watch it, I highly recommend it. Women Talking wouldn't have made my top 10 by itself, but like, you know, I, we're having a she said moment, so I'm shouting out Miriam Taves anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know what even the contenders are for the best Me Too books. I, I'd have to think about it more, but that is a wonderful yeah. Uh, achievement that particular book and it feels it has an at woody ability to be outside of space and time so it may last longer mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. Um, just because it doesn't feel it's important but it's not so specific yeah it's, it's not feel dated it's not anchored to like pop culture elements yeah and all the more powerful for it right yes. because it's it throws into harrowing relief that this is not a new or transitory phenomenon right. that this is tectonic plates that have been grinding for all of human history, mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. Um, and and finally are erupting and continue to deal with the, the lava flows um, from that. All right. So we're up to your four then. Well, I just went. We so why don't next. we take your four? Oh, you know, I've got to say, I didn't expect to have a debut novel this high, but you really got to hand it to Daisy Jones in the <laughs> Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. <laughs> What a wonderful coming out party for her. Um, I can't believe that a first... Uh, okay, enough of the bit. So it was a phenomenon at the time in print and audio, got turned into a wonderful series, and then cuspiness, cuspiness. Mm-hmm. The Taylor Jenkins Reen's book talk phenomenon. The, 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 the stage was being set with Daisy Joes in the Six. for, And I guess her signal work really now, I think in the bookish world is this um, Evelyn, Evelyn Hugo. Hugo book. But in terms of a pop, I, I don't know. And What is future? Can you consult with Rebecca yeah. from 10 years from now? <laughs> is she picking Daisy Jones or Evelyn Hugo to be Taylor Jenkins Reid's signal work? She's taking Daisy Jones. I had this at number two. Okay. Um, okay. Because I, this feels to me like Evelyn Hugo, as you were saying, is the book world's favorite, but Daisy Jones is the one that the civilians read that you know Mm -hmm. i recommended to like everybody in my life who likes books especially audiobooks it was really wonderful on audio big amazon adaptation that's pretty good and like kind of exactly feels exactly the way you want an adaptation of a book about 70s rock stars who were like very melodramatic (laughs) to be um i think that long run we know taylor jenkins reads name from daisy jones yeah fair enough okay all right, so that was your okay. deuce? That yeah, that was my two, two and that was okay, your four. So my four, four is yeah. Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Um, Just outside mine. Okay. Really? Okay, yeah. Biggest yeah. debut of the year. It was so of the moment, um, dealing with yeah, 
you know, violence against black people in public, um, dealing with YouTube is the thing really that happens in this book where something is recorded and goes viral, Mm -hmm. Um, dealing with race politics, as you were talking about uh, how to be an anti-racist. I think a lot of, you know, well-meaning liberal white people read such a fun age and saw uh, unfortunate glimpses of themselves in, Mm -hmm. in the ways that the wealthy white characters in the book treat uh, the young black woman who works for them. And it's just so it is so sharp. Um, Kylie Reed's second book is coming out later this winter or maybe just in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, and that'll be the real question is, you know, it was such a fun age, I think, a one hit wonder? Uh, or is she going to make a, like an ongoing name for herself writing, you know, this kind of sharp fiction that blends contemporary events and contemporary questions with sort of a, a timeless page turnery quality? I also I mean, it got picked up by Reese's Book Club. I saw this book being read in a lot of airports. Folks who are what we think of as like civilian readers who read a handful of books a year picked it up and talked about it. I heard about it um, from just casual readers in my life. Um, And maybe some of it is recency bias, that this is only five years ago. I remember the experience of reading it. I remember everybody talking about it. And we're currently anticipating the next Kylie Reid very soon. Um, Future Rebecca is a little less confident about this being my number four. (laughs) (laughs) But today, Rebecca feels okay about it. (laughs) Yeah. Again, it could have been as high as probably five for me. I think I need another one. I think by itself, this is the. It's this is not. Um, what am I trying? What, what am I trying to think of? This is not Confederacy of Dunces. It's not enough by itself. I need a career mm-hmm. um, to get a little bit higher here. It hasn't had the adaptation. I don't know how many people are still picking it up. Um, so I'm a little less sure. If Come and Get It wasn't coming out in like two months, I think it would even be less on my radar oh, right now. Fair. But I, I've, yeah. I have a great affection for it, and I also could happily swap it out with my number three pick. I wanted to think a little bit outside the box just to think of what are the stories, but also to remind myself that books for adults are not the only thing that happens Mm. in any given reading year. Um, And if I look at the continued popularity where I see it, I know it's given as a gift all the time. It had an Apple TV adaptation. The children's book of the year of 2019 was The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse uh, by by Chal McKeezy, which was Barnes & Noble's book of the year selection and it continued to be on the hardcover children's fiction best-selling list for like the next 18 months, and I still see it. It'll pop up around gift-giving time. This is like, you know, we. it's hard to know in the moment when you're around the emergence of something like a Little Prince or a Phantom Tollbooth or something like this. But I think that's what this is for this year, and you don't get that that many, so I had to put it somewhere. Okay. I was like, maybe I should put it 10. Maybe I should put it 1. <laughs> I, know. I was like, I could put it anywhere, so I kind of, I was like, all right, I'm going to put it in the, the the bottom of my top three, Yeah. because it's like, you don't see this very often. This is a beloved book. It's one of the highest, it has a bunch of ratings on Goodreads, but not only, but it has a high star count. It's like up to 4.6, mm-hmm. which is outside of the three and a half to four and a quarter. It's like, that's a very good book. So I could be overcompensating, but I was trying to take off my 45-year-old blinders a little bit uh, and include it here. That's a wise choice. I had the same. I could have it at one or I could have it at 10. And so I just solved that by not putting it on my list. You know what? <laughs> Screw that. We're not even going to include it. Yeah. I also don't have a frame of reference for it. I haven't read it. I don't think anyone in my 
you know, book reading, talking about books together circle has read it. So yeah. it, it lives in my sort of cultural memory and my cultural brain as a thing, a thing that people like and we're really into, but I have nothing to like tie myself. It's quite beautiful. Like it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm too old now to have it changed my life. I think in this particular way, but the adaptation is really quite moving. I think it's, it's, it's very good. If I could keep the animal order straight in my head, I think I'd have it at number one. Yeah, you know, if I could only remember that it goes the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Every single permutation I've come out of my mouth on this podcast at one point. Um, and so what's that? Yeah. That's probably four times, three times two. So yeah, there's easily 24 permutations I could put those into, and uh, I certainly have done that. But yeah, anyway, I've if you've them- got a eight-year-old on your list... I think that's sort of, you know, an er, someone who's just picking up books they can read by themselves, but it's not, you know, Little Blue Truck. It's kind of magical for 8 through 10, that's 8 sweet. through 11, which is a wonderful reading age, by yeah. the way. My number three is also a, like, people like things that are not necessarily for me pick. And and this was one that I, I thought of as, like, the youths are into it. It's Normal People by Sally Rooney. Uh, like, the Chalametification of fiction. <laughs> in my brain uh but it was normal people was everywhere the sally rudy tote bags were everywhere it got a hulu adaptation that i've heard was good this is so not my flavor um but it was a really big deal sally rooney continues to be talked about um i don't know when we have another sally rooney book coming out but i expect that i think there's like folks who liked the sally rooney books when they were coming out i think continue to be excited about her that seems to be enduring affection for the kind of work that she does or at least what she was doing back then um this is one i also could have been talked into like take it off the list i couldn't put it any higher than three there were moments where it went lower i don't know this whole middle section is challenging but there we are sally rooney people really liked it that's what i can tell you about sally rooney and normal people so i I had this as high as two, but I ultimately left it off my list for this reason and this reason alone. It came out in the UK in 2018 oh. and then in 2019, but the conversation was already happening. So I was like, you, we use the US dates, yeah. so that's fine. But in, in my mind, it's like, I actually think when this was published in the US, there was already so much buzz from the UK and people that had been reading it and talking about it that I left it out of 2019. But that's just me. That's just how I was like, it felt like a little okay. bit earlier than that. Yeah, well. And it, it, on Goodreads, it shows as 2018. Again, it's the UK version. I was like, wait, is the Times wrong or is Goodreads wrong? Well, the Times <laughs> I know, are I, wrong. I checked so I drilled the down publication here. dates. Yeah, well, so in four years, when we're in 2028 and we go back to 2018, you can have this on your list. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I agree with you completely. And I only had a little bit of like Schrodinger's hardcover about what mm-hmm. to do with the, the first edition. Um but yeah, I think you're completely right. I think you I think you would like this still. If you can get over the I'm not 20 anymore. Remember, it's like it's the first time everyone every day someone has seen <laughs> friends for the first time, mm-hmm. right? Like we see this. And that doesn't mean they're bad or yeah. dumb. It just means that people get to be 23 sometimes. Yes, they and do. I think we can enjoy that with people. And so here's what I need listeners to help me out with. I cannot yeah. do I'm 23 again by way of like Olivia Rodrigo, like pop music about the angst Mm -hmm. of being 23 doesn't do it for me. So I, my assumption is that fiction about that experience is probably not going to do it for me either, but I could be talked out of it. If you liked normal people, but you also can't get down with like Olivia Rodrigo or mid season Taylor Swift, help me. 
And maybe aren't, you, aren't these, some of these romances you read, twenty-year-olds. What what's happening here? Sometimes, but is, I'm I find like that's also a problem of contemporary romance. Is that like very rarely is anyone you like, like into deep sunrise? adulthood? If you like before, it's true. You, if you I do encountered before sunrise. Now at your but age, you like would a, still like it. Yeah, but it's like a perfect movie. <laughs> Listen, this has one point three million ratings on Goodreads. It's time to wonder a little bit, Rebecca. Come on. Open your heart. <laughs> Maybe I'll get to it after we do Lonesome Dove this summer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're, we're doing page by page, so it's going to take us All a right. while to get so through that. Those... But, I, but I had that, again, That's that was a weird, like, I was feeling technical about that. But you're absolutely right to have yeah. it way at the top um, okay. if, if you're comfortable putting in 2019. So those were our threes. My two was Daisy Jones. Now that I know what your one is, I know what your two yeah. is. It's Nickel Boys yeah. by Colson Whitehead. So why don't you speak on it first? Because you had it number yeah, one. Yeah, so this was my number one. I mean, a year where there's a Colson Whitehead novel that's current, like the asterisk around that is that's not necessarily one of the carny, uh, like sort of spy, not spy, yeah. but the like the thrillers that he's doing currently. A year where there's like a, a, a Colson Whitehead, like novel, novel, it's almost always <laughs> going to be my number one. Nickel Boys is slight. It's it really packs a powerful punch. It's about an element of American history or like a particular story in American history that is underknown and undertold and very horrifying. And uh, I, like I loved, you know, the Underground Railroad. That is such an achievement. And Whitehead does stuff in Underground Railroad using the surrealism that lets him you know, it lets you get to do different things when you reach for those tools. But Nickel Boys is a straight ahead novel. There's no magical element to like soften any of it. And not that the Underground Railroad is softened in any way. That book is brutal and difficult. But there's just something about this slight book about a horrifying story. Like it's it's also impossible to pitch other than this is really important. And Colson Whitehead does it better than anybody else. And we should have more books about this, more books like this. It's a Colson Whitehead novel. Like, what do you want me to say? I, you know, this is a this is maybe a future episode we could do. Maybe around uh, another Whitehead coming out, we could power rank our favorite Whiteheads. I think we've done that in some version before, casually at least. Yeah. the The farther I get from Nickel Boys, I'm not sure it's not the best. One. I agree. In, ter- uh, in terms of control, mm-hmm. subject matter. Um, it has an Ishigurian level of technical mastery that it turns into complete, complete, I guess, ownership and creation of a sensibility and feeling um, that emanates from the sentence to the paragraph, to the page, to the chapter, to the whole thing. Yeah. Only because Underground Railroad come out first, I think this got overwhelmed by the acclaim for Underground Railroad. I agree. And the Underground Railroad pitch is much simpler. Um, it's much more, even as it's much difficult, it's much more of a pleasurable, I'd say in a conventional way, reading mm-hmm. experience. It's much mm-hmm. more overtly inventive. Um, but I'm not sure in my heart of hearts that Nickel Boys doesn't distill. And, and when we talk about that Whitehead can do anything, yeah, this is maybe the best example because it feels like it's there's nothing, there's, there's no gimmick. Yes, there's no conceit. That's what I was thinking about. I think Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys make a really interesting, you know, one-two punch because Underground Railroad does what it does 
so well and there's the razzle dazzle of all the surrealist yeah. elements and those don't cheapen the book at all like it's not a trick mm-hmm. it's not a gimmick that book is fantastic but then you get into nickel boys and like there's no razzle dazzle and it's kind of like whitehead being like look i don't need it i can play with the That's razzle right. dazzle i have the glitter in my toolbox but i don't have to reach for it it, it just straight ahead living in this world with these characters like saying the true thing right up front it's unflinching in a way that underground railroad uses some of those tools to give you like a little bit of distance so that if you need to flinch you can flinch but you can stay you can keep going um, yeah. and and sit with those characters but whitehead just sort of strips it all back i think ishiguru is a wonderful comparison here that it's just it's tight it's so controlled and for my money right now it is the best of the whiteheads you know the new york times um had becoming on their list so now we're on i saw this (laughs) and that's i think we've got some slippage here so let's talk about honorable mentions that that one didn't come out in 2019 no i don't know what they're doing it came out in 2018 and my best guess was that they had already done their notable books of the year list for 2018 before becoming came out and maybe they couldn't get a copy of it early to put it on the list early Um, very strange it was it is weird but the new york times does occasionally have books on that notable books list before their publication dates so yeah yeah but i I saw that as well and was like what are you doing here (laughs) uh what so we already mentioned so that was gonna say that was when i was like uh, I don't know how we're keeping score, but, and the normal people thing had me off my tilt a little bit. I was like, wait, am I, what's right here? What is real? Um, And getting a little bit of other things that came out this year that's worth mentioning. You know, Fleischman in the Trouble Mm -hmm. was a big book at the time in the Mm -hmm. book club world and turned into a really wonderful adaptation. Um, Taffy Brodsner Ankener has another novel coming out, I think this summer, Mm -hmm. which I'm I'm looking forward to. But I need, again, in the Kylie Reid, I'd like two points make a line. Right. Um, So I'd like to see a second point there. Um, what else did you have in your honor? Oh, then a, a very Jeff pick, The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. I love Ben <laughs> Lerner. Um, if anybody else has been reading Ben Lerner and anything else, I could move it up the list, but unfortunately, yeah. not enough of a audience right now. Uh, to, I mean, to move it up. when there's an Ann Patchett, you have to shout out an Ann Patchett. The Dutch House came out in 2019. Yeah. A, a reliably good, good Ann Patchett. I didn't get to it until, I think, last year. I'm glad that mm-hmm. I went back. Uh, in the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Uh, just can, yeah. uh, That's a book I just continue to think about. I think it will continue to be something that we talk about. Um, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. That was huge. Mm -hmm. There was just this moment where Ocean Vuong was all anybody was talking about. Um, And he's had some books of poetry since then and a memoir. It'd be really interesting to see what happens with another Ocean Vuong novel. Um, A pair of essay collections that I thought about a lot in 2019, Thick by Tressie McMillan-Cottom and Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. Um, The books themselves, I don't know how those essays hold up into 2023, but they are both thinkers that I continue to follow and really value. if we had done this at the start of 2019, guessing what was going to be big, I think we would have guessed that the mm. Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern would have been a big topic of conversation. <sighs> yeah. I was disappointed by it. It hasn't had the legs that the Night Circus had, but like almost nothing ever has those kinds of legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Testaments by Margaret Atwood also came out in 2019. Yep. I was also underwhelmed by that one, but thought I should, we should mention it. 
uh, Fleischman was on my also rans know my name by Chanel Miller um, I could have put that one in with she said and women talking a me too memoir um, Miller was the victim of rape at Stanford and a really famous case and then she de-anonymized her victim statement and published it on BuzzFeed um, and kind of in the remarkable the middle of the me too moment then wrote this really incredible bracing memoir about it um that's an important document from 2019 from this time as well uh, and the I water dancer out. by oh. Tanahasi coates came out in 2019 which was a, a big thing at the moment but i don't think that one's really lasted no no it hasn't Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham, which I listened to mm. when it came out and had, I listened to it on an overnight flight from New York, um, which was a very strange yeah. experience and I think added to the eeriness and I, I, the otherworldliness of that experience in that book and then turned into the magisterial um, series on HBO called Chernobyl, which if you're a nonfiction person, it's truly Tremendous. I, I think it's probably my favorite limited series I've ever seen. It's completely well oh, wow. done. Um, really, really spectacular stuff. Um, I guess just to look at the top of the list, so we are not um, beholden to slash responsible to slash accountable to whatever when it comes to just the most popular stuff. Just looking at the most popular books, this is Goodreads list. Um, the Silent Patient by Alex Michaelides is number one. Uh, and by by a good stretch, mm-hmm. uh, it's a mystery about um, a painter. Something happens. I did not read this. Weirdly, I didn't read this one, so I picked up the second book called The Maidens, which I was underwhelmed by. The Fury actually comes out today, but the inaugural book by someone who now has, is selling because the third book has had a, a million print run. Again, hard to know what to do with a the launching of a. This it, it feels to me slightly more elevated than a grocery store thriller embossed name in gold, but it's not. I'm not. I'm trying to. Think, it's not Donna. It's not the secret history. It feels like it wants to be the secret history plus James Patterson is what Michael Ladies mm, is trying to do. Those books sell. I'm not sure what to do without these lists. Also, one a good girl's guide to murder. This is for the extremely online crew that love, you know, true crime, and I think this is a YA title. And it's sold extremely well. This might just be a blind spot for us. There's a version of this where people are listening like, you guys are completely idiot. You, you are so dumb. This yeah. book is huge and it was important to a lot of people. That's how this happened. Then a lot of commercial fiction in a row. Regretting You, Colleen Hoover, that's the, first, that's the one that came out that year that got picked up by the Hoover and Tide. The Honeymooners by Christine Lauren, commercial fiction, Red, White, Laurel, Blue. Then we get the Holly Black, Wicked King, Folk of the Air 2. I have no relationships to these series, but I know people really like them. Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. The thing that shocked me, and the only reason I didn't have, I should have mentioned when you said Unearthed with Bursley Gorgeous, that's when I went round and round on. Mm. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of it, but it was the number 11 most popular book of twenty yeah. of 2019. How did we not put this in our top 10? I guess we both just don't have enough of a relationship to it. And there's no adaptation, and it doesn't feel like anyone talks about it now. But that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. My final uh, shout-out is just a personal fave. Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Uh, yes. Great, charming romance with a middle-aged protagonist. Bless. You recommended it to me. I think you got to this one first. I loved it. Yes, I loved her I second one. I'm here for Linda Holmes as a romance writer. Um, I, In terms of a reading favorite from this year... 
um, The Night Boat to, Tan- to Tangier by Kevin Barry. It's these old drug runners. Mm. It's great. Mm-hmm. Kevin Barry is fantastic. Um, that, I don't know. That's an if you know, you know. Uh, for Kevin Barry. There's also a Kevin Wilson this year. That was really yeah, fun for me as well. Yeah, Nothing to See Here. I loved that one. Nothing to See Here. Yeah, I think. And there was a Zadie this year, but it's short stories. Mm-hmm. Did you read Grand Union? Have you no, read I missed Union? that one. And okay. City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert came out in 2019. That was a, a big, fun novel that year. Remember when Elizabeth Gilbert got an Instagram and said, I was writing a book set in Russia and I pulled the plug on that? I wonder I what's do. happening with that I right do. now. I think it's just gone. <laughs> just Got disappeared. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that was fun, Rebecca. Thank you very fun. much. As you can find our full notes at bookride.com slash listen. You can find um, the Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, we'll be back with our regular new show on Thursday. Uh, next week on the Patreon, I've got a, uh, what am I doing? Oh, a hit, a hot list. We'll check hmm. in. It's going to be a cold list. It's kind of a lull right now. <laughs> Gonna be a lot of 20, uh, 23 titles on the hot list right now, though maybe I can throw a couple of interesting changes for you. Rebecca, thank you. Oh, email us. We got a new newsletter, which has been a lot of fun. Um, yes. There's a list there. There's a link in the show notes. But one of the things we've been doing, we, we've done it once, so I cannot But use we're going to do principle. it. <laughs> we're going to be doing into the future is um, a mailbag section where I'm including some notable feedbacks and then writing a little response. This is not adversarial, so this is for fun. But we get so much good email. But in, in order for that to be the case, I need to continue getting email. I'm getting a little bit of lull right now. I think we've been right about everything. So I think there's no reason to email us. But, yes, surely um, that's sure what it can, is. We're just right. I'm sure you could find something <laughs> to uh, respond to in this power ranking. Rebecca, thank you, as always. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>